Good morning, everybody. What a privilege we have to open up the Word of God right now. Uh, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, and I'm going to ask you to stand in just a moment, and then I'm going to read God's Word. We're talking today about how God comforts His people, and we live in an uncomfortable world, and we want comfort. Now, we like comfort food. We, we like a warm comforter on a cold day. You might even want a custom comfort mattress made right here in the city of Orange. But seriously, we want, we want the comfort of a friend who gives an encouraging word. And most significantly, most importantly, we want God's comfort. We, we need God's comfort. At its worst Sinful, depraved humanity is running out of control and consistently calling right wrong and wrong right. I mean, there's too many examples to list. And across the spectrum, from worshiping ungodliness to devaluing human life, we need God's comfort. In this passage for today, uh, Paul is in great need of comfort and he has endured brutal beatings, he has endured false accusations and painful persecution, he is going through trying times, and, and these trying times are literally crashing down on him like waves, one after another. And in the midst of all that, in a very bleak outlook, humanly speaking, God breaks in with comfort. That's what we're going to see today. So please stand with me if you're able, and I'm going to read Acts chapter 22, beginning at verse 22. All the way over to chapter 23, verse 11. And I want to remind you, this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with a fe such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? God is going to strike you. you Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And the dissension became violent. And the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your presence with us and we pray that you would have your way in our hearts today, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Our passage for today, Paul is in great need of comfort and he receives comfort from the Lord Jesus himself. We looked at the book of Acts for a long time here. We have been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book, and we have seen something about the book of Acts that's very notable. It is, it is the Holy Spirit has had Luke write to record Christ's work through his witnesses for his sovereign purposes. That is the big idea of the book of Acts. Where in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you're going to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when you really look at the book of Acts, you see three big sections. The first seven chapters trace the gospel's progress in Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12 trace the gospel's progress in Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 28, you see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And by the way, the gospel is still going to the ends of the earth. We have many gospel opportunities, and Paul was traveling on land and sea. We can go through the air now and go to the ends of the earth. And in our increasingly shrinking world, the ends of the earth have come to us. And so we have these amazing gospel opportunities right at our doorsteps as well as, as far as God sends us. In chapter 2 of Acts, uh, 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost. And almost instantly there is Jewish persecution against Jesus and his followers. You go on to chapter 7 and there's the stoning of Stephen. He is giving testimony for Christ and, and he is killed for it. And this pushes Christians out of Jerusalem. And it's a good thing because now the gospel is going to more and more people. 
chapter 9, Paul is saved and he continually battles false accusations and harsh persecution. And then chapter 21, the Jews accuse Paul of going against God, of going against the temple, of going against the law, three things he did not do. They hated Jesus, so they hated Paul. And then we see this, and you go through the book of Acts, and what you notice is the trajectory for Paul is that he's going all the way to Rome. And so you go to the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 28, and you see him there in Rome, preaching the gospel to Jews. In fact, go with me to chapter 28. We're not finishing Acts today, by the way. But I want you to look at verses 24 to 26. Here's Paul preaching the gospel to Jews in Rome. They are coming to him at his rented house. And some of the people he's preaching the gospel to are convinced. But there are many who disbelieve. They are disagreeing with the gospel and they depart. But not until Paul makes one last statement. You'll see it in verse 26. The Holy Spirit, he says, was right to say about your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And these words in verse 26, I want you to look at them because they're in the Bible four times. First of all, Isaiah talks about them. He says them. And then Jesus restates them. And then John restates them. And then Paul, right here, says it too. Four times in the Bible. And, and here's the word from Isaiah 28, excuse me, from Isaiah. Um, Go and say to them, you will hear but never understand. You will see and never perceive. And see, by their unbelief, they were judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. They were judging themselves as unbelievers. Here is Jesus Christ fulfilling all prophecy and and keeping all of God's promises and, and he is blatantly rejected over and over again by the same people who he came to save. And here in chapters 22 and 23, the antagonism of the Jews just ramps up even more. If it's possible, it gets worse. And in this passage, we see confusion. We see confrontation. We see crisis. And then we see the comfort of God. You've got to go through, though, the confusion, the confrontation, and the crisis before you get to the comfort. First, I want you to see the confusion. Chapter 22, verses 22 to 29. Here you have Paul, you know, continually doing the right thing. The Jews continuing to do the wrong things. And Paul has been trying to preserve truth and unity. He has come into the temple with some men who are consecrating their lives to God. And the Jews spot him and target him, and they start to beat him, and the Romans arrest him, effectively saving his life. And Paul has given his last official public sermon to the Jews. He's told them about his former hatred of Christ, his former hatred of Christians, just like them in that moment. And he's telling them about his conversion to Christ, how he, he has been saved by the grace of God. He's telling them how God appointed him and now has sent him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And when he says that word Gentiles, it just sets them off. They go through the roof. Look at verse 22. They're enraged. 
Up to this point, they listen to him. He says Gentiles, and they raise their voices, and they say, away with him. He should not be allowed to live. He needs to die. Verse 23, they shout. They throw off their cloaks. They're throwing dust in the air. They are grieving because they think that Paul is wrong. And they're the ones that are completely wrong. Paul's absolutely right. Verse 24, the tribune orders him to be brought into the barracks. And, and then he says this, let's beat him to a bloody pulp to find out why they're shouting about him like this, why they're accusing him of all these things. And so verse 25 tells us they literally stretch him out for the whips. They're stretching him out with, with leather cords. It's a very brutal process what's going to happen to Paul. They take leather cords that are knotted or wire with frayed ends and, and strung with bones and lead pellets. And they're about to beat him senseless. Try to get some answers out of him. And then Paul calls time out. He's like, uh, time out, hold on a second. By the way, is it legal for you to beat me? I'm a Roman citizen. So Paul drops this bombshell and verse 26, the centurion who's over 100 soldiers goes to the tribune who's over 1,000 and says, what are you doing? Like, you're going to get me in trouble for this. You're going to get me killed for this. This man's a Roman citizen. Verse 27, the tribute says, tribune says, what? He goes to Paul and he goes, what do you mean you're a Roman citizen? He says, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Paul admits he's a Roman citizen. Up to this point, he hadn't said anything about that. And so then it looks like pride's taking over for the tribune because verse 28 he says, well, <clears throat> I bought this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul's like, checkmate. I was born a citizen. And so now he, he's trumped the tribune and verse 29, those who are about to beat him to a bloody pulp are like, Take, getting away from him like he has a, a deathly illness that's contagious, and, and the tribune is shaking in his boots because he has committed a serious crime against Paul. It was against Roman law to do what had been done to Paul, to chain him up and then beat him. It was against the law. And so there's a lot of confusion about who, who is this guy? What, what's going on? And then you see a confrontation. The last verse of chapter 22, all the way to the fifth verse of chapter 23, verse 30 of chapter 22. The next day, the tribune wants to know, so why, why is he being accused by the Jews? So he unbinds him. He commands the chief priests and the council to meet. He's getting the Sanhedrin together, the 70. He brings Paul downstairs. Remember, they're in the the um, fortress of Antonia, which is right next to the temple, overlooking it so that the Romans can keep an eye on what the Jews are doing. And they bring him downstairs and they set Paul before the Sanhedrin. And Paul is not in chains. He gets brought before the Sanhedrin. He is on trial in Fort Antonia, not in the Hall of Hewn Stone where the 70 members would usually gather together in judgment. They're gathered together, presumably in the basement of this fort. And here would be the setup. The high priest would be in front. There'd be two recording secretaries and Paul, the prisoner, right in front of them. 
Now, starting in, verse, in chapter 21 of Acts, Paul, the prisoner, journeys to Rome. He is a prisoner for the rest of the time, all the way to the end of the book. And here there's this confrontation between the Sanhedrin and Paul. Paul is going to now present the claims of Christ once again to them, and, and it's just notable that the Sanhedrin has had five opportunities to evaluate the gospel, evaluate the claims of Christ. And each one they have rejected Christ. First at the trial of Jesus. Secondly in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John. Third in, in Acts 5 and, and, and in Acts 7, the fourth time when Stephen is giving his defense. And now they're going to hear Paul. For a fifth time now they're going to hear the gospel. And, 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 and think about this. God is giving them an opportunity once again to hear the gospel. How gracious God is, how loving, how patient he is. I don't know about you, but if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've heard the gospel over and over and over again, and you're like, you know, I'm just flying under the radar here. Nobody really cares. I'm just going to go and do my thing. I, I just want you to think about how patient, how gracious God is being to you to give you the opportunity to hear the gospel. How many times, if you're not a believer, how many times have you heard the gospel and rejected it outright? The Sanhedrin is gathered here, and now they're going to reject the gospel for a fifth time. And, and they first, by the way, the, the Sanhedrin first uh, gathered in the Greek era under Alexander the Great. Uh, by A.D. 70, they were abolished. They were no longer on the scene. Uh, but what would happen is the high priests would gather. Current high priest, former high priest, high priest's family, uh, Basically, the, uh, the elders, all the heads of families, all the heads of tribes, and also the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They had their own police force, and, and they, but they deferred capital punishment to Rome. And the only time they could actually kill someone, execute them, was that the temple had been desecrated as they think it has been now. When Paul says Gentiles, they automatically think, see, he did bring Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple and desecrate it. And so they set Paul before them. The tribune, the Roman, is, is watching this. The Sanhedrin is all staring at him. And verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul looks at them. Now the idea here is looking intently at them as he was staring them down. He was giving them the death stare. Basically, how dare you call Jesus Christ and the gospel into question? And he addresses them as brothers, which sounds good, except... It was hugely inappropriate to the Sanhedrin. They would have hated him more for doing this. Uh, what they wanted to be called is rulers and elders. Like, hey, rulers and elders, let me kiss your ring, right? No, he just says brothers, which is a very bold move. It literally, it would be, in, in today's talk, it would be like dudes. And they're thinking it's very inappropriate. And then he makes an even more inappropriate assertion in their minds. He tells them, I have lived my life up to this day with a clear conscience before God. Literally up to the minute, my conscience is clear. Now think with me about the conscience for a moment. We're not talking Jiminy Cricket and things like this. We're talking about your conscience that God has given you, and your conscience is judge and jury in your heart. Your conscience either, either confirms or, or condemns you. Your conscience 
judges the moral rightness of your thoughts and your words and your actions. The Bible talks about having a weak conscience, 1 Corinthians 8. A, a defiled conscience, Titus chapter 1. An evil conscience, Hebrews 10. 1 Timothy 4 talks about a seared conscience. And what that means is, when you say when you say no to God over and over and over again in disobedience, in sinful disobedience, and your heart literally gets cauterized, your heart literally gets calloused and scarred so that you don't feel. That's a seared conscience. First Timothy 3 talks about having a pure conscience. That's what we want. We want to have a pure conscience before God. Paul was able to say, Romans 9, my conscience bears me witness. It, it's telling me that I'm acting morally pleasing to God. I have a clear conscience. So Paul is telling the Sanhedrin, you don't have anything to accuse me of, and not even my conscience accuses me. I'm clear. Well, they don't see it the same way. Verse 2, the high priest Ananias. By the way, this is not Annas, the high priest, who was the high priest during the time when Jesus was, was being uh, killed. This was the third high priest uh, in, in, that, in that string of high priests. And he commands them to, to hit Paul in the mouth. And, and it's not just a slap. We're talking uh, about a strike in, in the face, it's, it's the same word used for an extreme beating in chapter 21, verse 32. It's a full shot in the mouth. They, they literally just haul off and wail on Paul right in the face. And I'm not sure how you would have responded or how I would have responded, but verse 3 tells us how Paul responded. He was angry. He was lit up. He says, God will strike you, you whitewash wall. Literally, God is going to punch you, fool. And it's not a curse. He's giving a simple statement that God deals with injustice. And by the way, sometimes he deals with it very swiftly, as in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira was struck down immediately. And this Ananias, a different Ananias, interesting, but nine years later, he was killed by some attackers nine years, nine years later. Paul is, is so is so wound up, he says, and then he says to him, you judge me according to the law, and then contrary to the law, you order me to be struck, punched in the face. And he's got a point. It's a very bold point, by the way. Very bold point. But then, they're not agreeing with him still. Verse 4, they say, you're going to revile God's high priest? Now, some of you are probably thinking, what is wrong with Paul? He's lost it. Think about just how upset you get over little things. This guy has been arrested for his faith in Christ. He's been beat up. He's been mistreated. He's been falsely accused. All sorts of things. And, and some people would say, how come he can't be more like Jesus? You know, 1 Peter 2 tells us that Jesus, when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. Tells us that Jesus, when he was threatened, didn't threaten in return. How come he can't be more like his older brother Jesus? Well, Let's give Paul a little bit of a pass on this one. He's not Jesus. This is Paul, a human, not God. He is not the perfect, sinless, sovereign son of God. He is, he is man, and sometimes the old man is still in operation. And, and guess what can attest to that? How about just all of our, our, the, the, la, the week we just lived? That'll, that'll attest to the fact that the old man is sometimes in operation in our lives. 
So we've got to give Paul some slack to be a man here. When he said that the high priest is a whitewashed wall, he was referring to Ezekiel chapter 13, where there's a white wall with bad mortar that's weak, and they paint over it and pretend like it's fine. He's saying, you're a phony, Ananias. You're fake. But then we see humility. He's bold, but now we see him humble. Verse 5, he's told that he has just reviled God's high priest. And Paul says, I didn't know that he was the high priest. He says, I, I, I'm wrong. He says, it is written. He, he knows the word of God. And, and he, he quotes Exodus. And he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Exodus 22, 28. He knows the word of God, and he's under the word of God, and he is humble and submitted to God, and he says, I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Exodus 22, 28. knows the word of God, and he's under the word of God, and he is humble. There's this confrontation. And he says, I'm wrong. We've got confusion about his identity, and then this huge confrontation when they find out that he's a Roman citizen, and now you see a crisis, epic proportions. Verses 6 through 10, chapter 23. This confrontation leads to danger once again for Paul's life. His life is now in danger once again. Verse 6, he's wise and he realizes he's in mixed company. The Sadducees and the Pharisees don't see eye to eye on anything except hating Jesus and Christians. And so he cries out, hey, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of Pharisees. And it's because of the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. He's playing them against one another. Verse 7, uh, a fight arises, Pharisees and Sadducees, they're divided. Verse 8 tells us why. Sadducees say there is no resurrection and there are no angels. The Pharisees believe they all exist. Um, interesting thing about the Sadducees is that they viewed only the Torah as scripture. They said only the first five books of the Old Testament are scripture and they threw out the rest of the Old Testament and they said even the prophets not really the Bible. And, and they say, they said, and since there is no explicit reference to bodily resurrection in the first five books of the Bible, therefore there is no resurrection. And just to show their inconsistency, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, mentions a lot about angels and they deny that they exist. Verse 9 tells us, though, a big hullabaloo ensues. There's great clamor, that's the word clamor, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees are sharply contending with the Sadducees, and they start, this is awesome, they start sticking up for Paul. They're taking up for Paul now and saying, he's fine, he's good, maybe a spirit or an angel spoke to him, we're good. In verse 10, an argument becomes violent, and the tribune is basically thinking, Paul's going to get ripped in two. Pretty violent crowd to tear you in two. And he commands the soldiers to take him back into the barracks. So here he is once again in the barracks that house the soldiers in Fort Antonia. And God once again or rescues Paul's life as he is orchestrating his sovereign plan. And at this point, Paul is alone. He's not in chains, he's not in jail. He's in the barracks. He's under Rome's witness protection program. But he's got no friends present. He doesn't have Timothy or, or Silas or Barnabas to help him feel better. He, he had to have been lonely. He had to have been hurting from all the beatings. He had to have been discouraged. He had to have been questioning his call. 
Like, wait, am I really going to get to Rome? Am I really going to get all the way there? I mean, we live in a time where we can basically say, I'm going on a business trip to Rome. I'll be back in three days. Paul was going over land and sea. We go through the air and think, you know, I can just go and be back in no time. And Paul's thinking, I don't see how I'm going to get from here to there in one piece. And what we see now is like, like cavalry, God uh, showing up in the nick of time, uh, God intervening with comfort. One verse, verse 11, the last verse of our passage, verse 11. Look at it, the following night. Well, here is Paul going through a day and a night, and, and, and Jesus himself stands next to Paul. I can't get over this verse. Every time I read it, I'm like, Jesus, wow. He came to him. He's there with him. Paul didn't you know, press the emergency button. Paul didn't make a phone call. Jesus initiated this. He, he says to Paul, take courage. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged. Take heart. You have testified to the facts, the truth about me in Jerusalem, and you will testify in Rome. You're not going to die. I am in control. I am with you. I've got this in hand. You are going to continue to be my witness. We saw this last week that we have a big God with a big plan who uses small people. Here it's Paul who's chosen, who's called, who's converted, who's con being conformed to the image of Christ, and now he is being comforted by Jesus himself. He's being reassured and encouraged to, to continue on. Here is Paul, understandably, had to have been downcast and defeated and discouraged, and here is the God of all comfort, comforting his servant in time of need. If you're a believer, this is what you can expect from God, that you will be comforted in your time of need. Here's Paul. He's got a, a clear conscience. He's, he's got boldness, and, and he's got humility, and he's also got extreme dependence on God. He can't do this on his own. He's vulnerable. He's human. He's looking to God, who is God. And this God, God Almighty, does immeasurably more than Paul could ask or think. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians when he's, he's praying for them, when he's pouring his heart out to them in a letter, and he says, God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. Because God met him in the confusion. God met him in the conf confrontation. God met him in the, in the middle of the crisis. And he met him with comfort. And, and God just did it. Of his own will, God just did it. This is why Paul could write to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to go there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 3. And I want you to see something. I want you to see the comfort of God that is abundant. And what you'll notice is that I'm going to read you this passage, and you're going to see the word comfort nine times in a small amount of biblical real estate. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. 
let these words just wash over your soul, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. And Paul is saying we're in this together. This is a, a shared comfort. This is a community comfort for, the, for, for all those who are in Christ. I hope you can grasp this. The, the comfort of God that's abundant towards you is also abundant towards every believer. And this is a community comfort. And that's why he says, you, you share in our sufferings and you share in our comfort. You should encourage your heart. Christ's comfort is abundant for those who are in Christ. Those, it, it's, it's to those who are clinging to Christ and who confess they have no good but Christ. And I want you to notice something. That word comfort that is there nine times here in this passage is the Greek word paraklesis. It, it's literally the word for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send another comforter. He's going to be with you forever. And this is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice something else, that in this passage, it doesn't stop there. Paul goes on. Paul goes on. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's taking them back to the, the persecution that he experienced with Silas in Acts chapter 16. And that same persecution kept rolling through all the way to Acts 22 and 23, a continuation of the same kind of mistreatment at the hands of unbelievers. And Paul says this about that. He says, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Have you ever just wanted to die because you were so discouraged? Paul says, we wanted to die. It was so tough we wanted to die. And he says it was like a death sentence. He says we felt like we had the, the sentence of death on us. He's being real with us here. He's exposing his heart. He's being transparent. But like the psalmist, Paul didn't just stay and wallow in despondency and despair. He knows the truth. And so in the same letter over in chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10, 15, verse 5, he was able to say, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I know what I do. I know what you do. We make it all about us and what we need and how we're not getting what we need and what we want. And I've said this so many times to myself and to you, but God knows what you need. And he provides what you need. But you won't always get what you want. Now that's tough for us, isn't it? And he provides what you need. Paul is going through a storm here. He's battered, he's bruised, he's been beaten down, and he's been mistreated for his witness to the gospel, to the testimony of the truth of the gospel, and he is finding it very tough going. And he's the one that wrote in Romans 8, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. I hope you can say that with, with me and with Paul. That God, this is the main point of this passage. God comforts his people with his presence and his promises. His presence and his promises. This is what we see here. 
We have a big God with a big plan who uses seemingly small, insignificant people in very significant ways as he reveals his sovereign plan. And he comforts them in suffering. And in the time we have left, I want you to look at two aspects of this. Really, this idea of God's presence and God's promises. This is God comforts us as believers with his presence and his promises. First, his presence. And the idea is this. We have to be very specific about this. Jesus himself comforts his people because he is the comfort of his people. He is, as Isaiah 9, 6 says, wonderful. He is, as Isaiah 6 says, counselor. I think of the Christmas story and I think of Joseph. The earthly father of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the, the birth of Jesus being retold. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and her husband, Joseph, didn't know that story. And he's a just man. He's unwilling to put her to shame, and so he says, I'm just going to divorce her quietly. They were betrothed. He had to go through a formal process, but he, he was going to do it. And he's considering these things. He's thinking about it. He is resolving to do it. And an angel of God appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to marry Mary. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He's going to have a son. You, Joseph, are going to call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. And this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Hebrew, God with us. And Joseph is learning, and we need to learn that there is comfort only in Christ. And even as your Christian brothers and sisters and your family members comfort you, the comfort they can give you is only the comfort they've received from Christ. And the greatest comfort the world has ever known and, or will ever know was realized at the birth of Christ. Isn't it scary to walk in darkness? You're in a dark place and it's scary if you're alone, but you have someone to walk with you, you feel really reassured. Here's Joseph walking through some darkness and, and he's, got a, he's got some confusion. He, he's got a, a, a confrontation going on in his own heart and it's a crisis and, and he is comforted by God. And he wasn't hallucinating. He wasn't making it up. God was with him, and God was promising that something would come to pass. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to stake my life on something, I don't want to deal in fake news. I want the truth. I don't want falsehood. I don't want lies. I want the truth. And, and he is getting the truth. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus himself comforts his people because he is their comfort. You think of the 23rd Psalm, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus himself comforts his people because he is his people's comfort. There's one more thing you need to see here. God also comforts his people with his, his promises. And the point is this. 
Jesus himself sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who leads people into all the truth. And the point is this. Jesus the Word of God. Sent the, Comforter, the written the Word of God. I think of Simeon. I think of the Christmas story. I think of Simeon in Luke chapter 2. It said that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That was very, it wasn't even code word. That was the clear word common used among the Jews to suggest that it was the Messiah. And, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word translated uh, consolation is the word in Greek for comforter, parakletos, the same word for the Holy Spirit. In Luke 2, you've got Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus to the temple, which always blows my mind, that the Lord is brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord. And they're offering the sacrifice of a poor couple, two pigeons, and there's a man named Simeon. He is righteous, he's devout, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. And it says the Holy Spirit was on him, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And he comes in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, into the temple. And Joseph and Mary are converging at the same time with, the, with, with Jesus, the baby Jesus. And, and Simeon takes him in his arms and he says, Lord, you can let me depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. Because in Christ, Simeon is seeing the fulfillment of the hope of the Jewish people across the centuries. To call Jesus the consolation of Israel takes you back to Abraham when God said, I'm going to make your name great and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Takes us back to Moses where God said, one day a great prophet will come like no other. Takes us back to David where God promised him that a son would reign on his throne forever. Takes us back to Isaiah who promised that a son would be born of a virgin and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. It takes us back to Micah who, who predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And generation after generation after generation, parent to child, family to family, they're, they're being told these things. And Jewish children were even taught to pray for the Messiah to come. But here's an interesting thing. After all this time, you come to the first century, all this expectation built up. Here is Jesus being born, huge excitement in the nation of Israel. God is stirring the pot of human history. And Simeon holds Jesus in his arms and says, this is the comfort of God. But here's what you've got to understand about what Simeon was doing. Where did he get the basis of his hope? He got it from Isaiah chapter 40. You need to go there, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, because Isaiah 40, verse 1, starts out like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Double, it's repeated twice to give double assurance. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem, not just to their intellect, to their heart. Let them know that the warfare is ended, that the iniquity is pardoned, that they've received from the Lord double for their sins. And then verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. 
What's it? It's the comfort of God, the Messiah, Jesus whom Simeon held in his hands. And then you hear that voice crying out, all flesh is grass, all its beauty like the flower of the field. What is that voice? What's the word being spoken? Isaiah 40 verse 8 tells us very clearly, the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. It's the written word of God, people. It's why Romans 15, 4, Paul could say, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. You open up a Bible, God is speaking. When the word speaks, God speaks. And by the way, Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Subduagent, that is paraklesis, the same word for the Holy Spirit. Because God comforts his people with his presence and his promises, but we must be very specific. God comforts his people through Christ and Scripture. Through Jesus Christ, the living word, and Scripture, the written word of God. A Holy Spirit illumined word. And God wants you to know his comfort. God wants you to know that comfort. Why, why does Jesus comfort us as believers? Because he loves us. It's, it's because he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Paul says the love of God is, is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. And by the way, if you're not a Christian today, you might not realize it, but you can love only because you're made in the image of God. And, and we want you to know the hope that is in Christ. If you're a Christian, you love because Christ first loved you. And the comfort, the comfort in Christ in Scripture, the comfort that Jesus gives is, is God's love to sin-laden people, sin-weary people who are sin-sick and need God's forgiveness. And the comfort they get is the forgiveness of sin. Don't miss the opportunity to have this comfort by excluding yourself somehow and saying, it's not for me. You might even say, well, I'm a Gentile. It's not for me. See, it was for the Jews. Well, don't misunderstand that Luke was writing to Theophilus, a non-Jew Roman official. You might even say, well, I'm a Gentile. It's not for Look me. at the comfort that God gives through Christ and Scripture. The love of God in Christ. We are trying to find comfort in so many ways. Pleasure, entertainment, conveniences, fun things, comfort and ease. But what we get as a follower of Christ, is a cross and discomfort and hardship and hard times. And, and boy, do we wish life was easy, but it's not. And we try so hard to orchestrate a pleasing atmosphere for ourselves. But the objects of our desires, when they're not Christ, are pale, pale counterfeits of the true comfort our hearts yearn for. God made us with a yearning that could only be filled with Christ. And God comforts you as a believer because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he created in you a need that only he could fill. So look to him for comfort and not to anyone or anything else. Again, even in the comfort you get from Christian friends, it's the Lord who is comforting you through them. It's the presence of God and the promises of God 
our only comfort in life and death. I'll close with these words. The Heidelberg Confession, written 1563, beautifully written. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. I hope that's the prayer of your heart. That you would look to Jesus and the Holy Spirit-inspired Bible to, to be comforted by the God of all comfort. And Lord, thank you that this is true, that you are here with us, and that we have been, have been looking into your perfect word. And Lord, we thank you that our comfort is not from ourselves, but is, is from you, and most specifically, through Jesus Christ and the word of God. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.